How's everybody doing this morning? Excellent. My name is Joe. I am the new discipleship pastor at Chester Christian Church. I'm very excited about that. I wanted to say thank you to so many of you who sent me e- emails. Uh, they really did mean a lot to me, so thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be able to be here as a part of your family. So thank you very, very much. Um, I'm also excited this morning because we get to restart our Genesis series. Uh, we're going to start part two of our Genesis series. Uh, in, in the first part, we covered chapters 1 through 14. So this morning, we're going to pick back up in chapter 15. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles right now if you'd like. If you didn't bring one, there should be one under one of the seats in front of you. Uh, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 15. Kind of the way that I want to approach this morning, uh, I want to give you a brief recap, and I say that with air quotes, brief recap of chapters 1 through 14, Uh, then we're going to read chapter 15 together, I'll pray, and then we're going to try to approach this chapter through the eyes of Abram, right? This, this, This sermon is titled, The Battle for Abram's Heart, and I would venture to say that you and I still today, this morning, are going through a battle over our hearts. So I think it's important that we kind of view this chapter through that lens. Um, so, first things first, I want to give you this brief overview. The first time I went through this with my wife, she said it took me 15 minutes. I am not going to take 15 minutes this morning, I promise. Uh, I have revamped things, but... Let's get started. So chapters 1 and 2, we see the creation of the world, right? God speaks everything that we see into existence. The creepy crawlies, the fish, the sea, uh, like everything that you see, God creates by his spoken word and currently upholds by his word, right? As the pinnacle of his creation, he makes a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. He puts them in a garden called the Garden of Eden. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, you're made in my image, and therefore I want you to rule accordingly, right? The only thing we couldn't do was eat from one tree. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And everything was fantastic. End of chapter 2, it's like God is our God. We're his people. He lives with us. We're in his presence, and it's perfect, right? Chapter 3, we see the entrance of Satan. He comes into the garden. Uh, he tempts Adam and Eve to eat from this tree that we were not supposed to eat from, They succumb to this temptation, the wheels come off, death enters into humanity, sin, shame, guilt, uh, the list goes on and on, disease, right? But it's bad stuff. God comes into the garden, Uh, he finds Adam and Eve in their new sinful state, and he makes this promise. He says, uh, you're going to be kicked out of the garden, like there's real consequences for your sin. Um, but I'm going to send someone through Eve who's going to crush Satan's head. In other words, there's someone coming through Eve who is going to make all things right again between God and man. The garden state that was destroyed, if you will, by our sin is going to be remade through this one who's coming. We're going to be reconciled to God again through this serpent crusher who's coming, right? So we see in chapter 4, uh, they get removed from the garden. They have a couple of kids. Their, name are, their names are Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, if you're familiar with that story, it doesn't end well. As the first human death 
that we see the first human death period is a murder. It's not a great outlook for the human race, right? We run into a gentleman named Noah in chapter 6. And there, chapter 6 through chapter 8, we see the flood where God judges humanity because every thought and intention of man's heart is only wicked continually, according to Genesis 6, 5. Right? So we get this flood that takes place from chapter 6 through 8. And then in chapter 11, the very end of chapter 11, we're introduced to a gentleman named Terah who has a son whose name is Abram. That's our man for this morning, Abram. And God calls Abram out from where he's living, which is Ur of the Chaldeans, also known as Babylon. It's a part of Babylon. And he he says, go to the land that I will show you. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abram takes his nephew Lot with him, and they head out. They don't even know where they're going, but they're going to follow this God who has called them out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Chapter 13, uh, we see this quarreling between Abram and Lot and their herdsmen. And so Abram says, hey, Lot, I tell you what, man, you go one way, I'll go the other. Your, Your choice. You go wherever you want. Lot takes off toward this area called Sodom because the ground is really, really nice there. It's nice and watered. It looks like a great place to live. Uh, God repeats kind of this promise he made in chapter 12. He says that Abram's descendants will be as numerous as, I believe, the grains of sand on the earth is what he says in chapter 13. And then we reach chapter 14, the chapter just before our chapter this morning, where we see there are four overlord kings who fight against five kings, and one of these five kings is Sodom, right? So the four overlord kings defeat these five kings, and Lot gets swept up in this battle and taken away. So a servant goes to Abram and says, Abram, Lot's been taken. We got to do something. So Abram prays. He takes 318 men, I'm going to say that again, 318 men, and defeats these four overlord kings, I would venture to say by the power of prayer, uh, and 318 men. So he goes and he defeats them. Uh, He winds up meeting with the king of Sodom, who wants to offer him some reward, and he says, I'm not taking anything, and this guy named Melchizedek. And then we reach chapter 15. So, at this point, we should be ready to go in chapter 15. I'm hoping your Bibles are already open there, and we're going to start reading. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him these, all, all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, uh, I've prayed this prayer many times uh, in the past few weeks, but I pray that you would guide my mouth, that you would lead us into your truth. Father, uh, it's your truth and your spirit that changes lives, that leads us and guides us. So, Father, I pray that as we dig into your word this morning, your spirit would be at work and would help us to look more like Jesus. Lord, we want to be obedient like Jesus. We want to live our lives like him. So I'm praying, Lord, that this time this morning uh, would be effective to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, again, the way I kind of want to approach this text, I, I tried on many occasions to give you know, a nice, real good, clean structure. At one point, I had like one proclamation, two patterns, and three practical implications. I had five ways that faith changes our perspective. But every time I would go to preach it, I just felt like the Lord was saying, this is not what I have for you to preach this morning. So instead, the way that I'd like to approach this with you is I want to approach it through Abram's eyes. I want to try to look at this text and look at this experience the way that he would have looked at it. And there's a couple things that you need to know about Abram before we're able to really do that. First of all, uh, Abram was polytheistic. Uh, we see in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, that he served many gods whenever he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was in Babylon. He's a polytheistic God when, when, when God calls him out. What that means is that there's a sense at which he doesn't know how much he can really trust this God. He's building a relationship. He's learning about God's character, but he's not fully there yet, right? They would have had like a, a, a God of money, a God of livestock, a God of rain, a God of crops, a God of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they didn't necessarily all have spotless character, right? Even today, there's a, a Marvel character named Loki, who is the god of mischief, quote-unquote, right? So 
Abram is, is looking, and he's still got this polytheistic background. And so the second thing I want you to know is that Abram is looking at his life's circumstances to verify God's character. He's kind of saying, okay, God's saying this thing. My life is showing this, so I do or do not think that this is legitimately what's going to happen, right? Uh, an example of this is, again, whenever Abram meets with the king of Sodom, uh, and the king of Sodom says, you know, hey, I tell you what, take everything that's here, take all the spoils, I only want the people, and Abram says, no, I, I raised my hand to uh, God Almighty, the Almighty God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram already had great wealth, that's why there was fighting between him and Lot in chapter 13, so he's recognizing that his wealth and his prosperity has come from God, right? It's not a promise that we all get that stuff, but Abram did, and he recognizes where that came from. And so he's, he's, he's starting to get some characteristics of, of God. Okay, so first of all, this God has blessed me with these many things. Second of all, I prayed to this God to protect me during this great war when I'm defeating, again, these four overlord kings with 318 men. It seems like this God is also a God of war. But long story short, he's, he's trying to verify this God's character by his life's circumstances. Not recommending that for us, just saying that is where he is at this point in his life. But that's going to change rather quickly in our text. So let's go ahead and let's start reading, and I'd like to, again, try to view this through his eyes. So after these things, again, that's after the defeat of these four kings, he meets with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. If you are not reading an ESV, it might not say that exact thing, right? If you're reading in an NIV, what you're probably reading is something along these lines. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Okay? There's some ambiguity in the Hebrew text. I'll get into that in just a minute, what that's all about. Uh, but for right now, I want to focus on fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Being that Abram had just defeated these four kings, he's going to be in a place of vulnerability, Right? You didn't just go and attack four overlord kings who were over these other five kings and not expect some kind of a retaliation. And Abraham has not exactly got a whole great big army. He's got 318 men with him. Abram is in a vulnerable, a vulnerable spot. He needs some protection. Right? He's, he's got some reason to be a little nervous about life. So God comes to him where he's at and he says... Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. But again, as Abram is looking at his life, he's trying to verify the character of this God. And he's saying, well, I did just defeat these four overlord kings with 318 men. So I believe God really is kind of this shield to me. He's shown himself already to be mighty in battle. So I believe it's very possible that that is this God's character, and he's going to do what he said. But I want to make something clear here. So, first of all, God is also our shield. Psalm 18, verse 30, I'll read it for you real quick. It says this, This God, his way is perfect. 
The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 115, verses 9 through 11 say this. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Do you trust in the Lord this morning? Amen. He is our shield. I want to make it clear, though, that that doesn't mean nothing bad ever happens to us in our lives, right? As we are looking at this text, Lot, a man who God would call righteous, is swept up in this war that he had nothing really to do with. But he gets caught up in this war and his family is taken and he's relying on his uncle basically to come and and, and rescue him. Later on in Genesis, we'll see uh, this guy Joseph, right? He gets beaten by his brothers and thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery in Egypt. Then he gets promoted to like the second man in this guy Potiphar's house, whose slave he is, and then Potiphar's wife frames him and he gets thrown in jail again. Like he's thrown in jail for years, years and years. In the end, God uses that to save many people, like the nations, from starving. But it doesn't mean that all of our life's experiences are going to be pleasant, right? But God is our shield, and that is an amazing thing. Everything that we go through in life is is put there for a reason by God to be used. Uh, This isn't just a promise that was there at one time for Abram. This is a promise that stands for his life and for ours. God is our shield. Moving on to this idea that God is our reward slash rewarder. Again, the reason I want to approach this the way that I am, I want to approach this as the rewarder part because of what Abram says immediately after. He says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? Which leads me to believe that Abraham is at least seeing this through the lens of God as the rewarder, not God as the reward. By the way, I'm sorry. I know I'm throwing a lot of concepts at you first thing in the morning, and I know it's like, whoa, what is going on, right? Uh, But there's ambiguity in this Hebrew text. There's a way in Hebrew to say clearly, either I am your reward or I am your rewarder. But the way that God chose to phrase this makes those two statements identical. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I can't tell you exactly what all that looks like. But in the research that I've done, those two phrases, because of the way God chose to phrase it, are ambiguous. You you can't tell which is which. They're the exact same. I believe God did that for a, a reason. And I would like to start by affirming the fact that God is our very great reward. Right? That's not the way we're going to approach this text, but it doesn't take away from that validity. God is our great reward. When we were in the garden, God's presence was ultimately the greatest thing about it. When we're in heaven, God's presence is ultimately going to be the greatest thing about it. God himself is our very great reward, and I think that's why he's ambiguous in this text. But the way that Abraham is at least understanding it or looking at it, is saying, okay, so God is my very great rewarder, 
And he says, Lord, what will you give me? Right? What are you going to give me? Because I am childless. This is where Abram's getting a little bit frustrated with the Lord. And again, he's looking at his life's circumstances to try to verify God's character. God made this promise in Genesis chapter 12 that he was going to be this great nation and have all this land and it was going to be fantastic. But Abram's getting old. And he doesn't have any kids. And so Abram's life circumstances are not lining up with what God said he was going to do. And so he's starting to get a little like frustrated. And so God says, you know, again, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, not Eliezer. I'm not talking about that guy. I'm sure he's great. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord... And God counted it to him as righteousness. This is one of the major, this is like the crux of so much of Paul's theology later in the New Testament is this concept of faith in God is what's giving us righteousness. And it, it's something that threw me off at first whenever I was reading this. I, was, I, I, I literally, I, I pulled Pastor Aaron into my office and I said, what changed, right? What, what is this where all, like, like he's looking at his life circumstances, he's feeling a little bit frustrated because things are not happening the way that God said that they were going to happen. And then all of a sudden, God just kind of repeats a promise he's already said twice, and it clicks. And I was like, man, it's almost like it's God's grace or something. And it was like, wait a second. I think I'm onto something there, right? God's grace is moved all of a sudden in Abram's heart and it's like he gets it. God's going to do what he said he's going to do in spite of my life's circumstances. God's faithfulness is beyond what I can see. It's beyond my life's circumstances. He doesn't need to try to measure God according to how his life is going. God surpasses all of those things and he suddenly gets it. And it isn't just that God, uh, I'm sorry, Abram believes that God is going to give him kids and that's why he's saved, right? He's believing in the promise that was given in Genesis chapter 12, which is the gospel. Even further back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 again, where he said that there's someone coming who's going to make all things right. Abram is getting it. This God is faithful beyond all of our circumstances of life. And now today we can like trust him in this. It's God's grace that moves Abram past this measuring. And he recognizes God for who he is as this good and faithful and holy God. And it's the same for you and I today, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not your own doing, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. Your faith is, is a gift. We get to see God clearly for who he is today. 
verse 7 says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This seems a little weird too, right? I mean, God, he just, Abram just had this like aha moment where he's recognizing God for who he is and like he's like right there. And then all of a sudden, it's, first reading, it's kind of like, that's a little weird. All of a sudden, he's right back in his old shoes where he's going, eh, how do I know? Right? It sounds a little bit weird. And so I was again looking at this, and what I've recognized is this isn't just a question of, well, how can I know? Abram's saying, how can I know at a heart level? Right? The, 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 the Greek word, uh, the Septuagint, is uh, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. It's quoted by the New Testament authors. Uh, the Greek word here is the verb form of gignosko, which is a, a deep and intimate knowing. Abram isn't saying, well, how am I going to know? He's saying, how can I know? Right? I get it up here. You're telling me that you're going to do these things. I get it. I believe you up here. But how can I know in my heart, the deepest part of me, because I'm a broken man? Right? I think about uh, this gentleman in Mark chapter 9. He has a son who is possessed by a demon, and this demon will seize his son and throw him into fires and things of that sort. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I believe, you know, look, if, if you're able, will you please cast this demon out? And Jesus says, if, 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 if I can? Like all things are possible for those who have faith. And this guy's reaction has always resonated with me so deeply. He, 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 he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? It's this intersection of belief and unbelief in our hearts. It's part of this battle. Even after God has won our hearts by His grace, we still deal with this battle on the inside. How do we get things from our heads to our hearts? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe that's exactly what Abram is saying here. He's saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help get this deeper inside of me because I'm a broken man and I know, man, in 35 seconds I'm going to walk away and I'm going to start to doubt. Help me. What can we do? How can I today trust you in a deeper way because I know I'm broken and I know I'm going to walk away from this and start to question it? But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this is the beginning of a description of what used to be a covenant back in this time period. So what they would do is they would take a certain set of animals and they would cut them in half and they would lay each side over against the other, right? And they would kind of make this pathway in between them. And the idea was that if me and Pastor Aaron were going to make a covenant with one another, 
We would say, okay, let's meet at this time. We're going to have all these animals laid out. And we're both going to walk through these two together saying that if I don't uphold my part of this covenant, you can cut me in half. I'll give you a slightly less violent thing that we do today that's basically the same thing is a pinky promise. Anybody know what a pinky promise is? Right? I mean, it sounds really cute. A pinky promise. Right? But what that really is, is it's saying that if I don't do what I said I'm going to do, you can break my pinky. That's what a pinky promise is. That's much more violent than what you thought, right? It's, 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 it's kind of the same thing. Abram is, is, is like in this place of like, Lord, how can I know in the deepest part of my heart that like you're going to do this? And God says, I'll pinky promise. Right? It, it, it sounds silly, but he's, God is genuinely stooping down to Abram's level. Abram, God sees the, the depth of of the despair and the concern about himself. And he says, I'm not going to leave you there. Yes, it's silly. It's silly for the king of the universe, the creator of all things, to say, if I don't uphold my part of the bargain, you can cut me in half. You know, that's kind of, it feels kind of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. Like, ha-ha, you can do this. But God is genuinely trying to reassure Abram in his faith through this covenant. I'd venture to say that there are a a few things that show heart change in Abram right now. James, later on in the New Testament, would say that uh, Abram's faith made itself known through his willingness to sacrifice Isaac later on. But there's a couple of things I want to point out about this text that show that Abram's heart is already beginning to change. I believe that this is a genuine moment for Abram when he believes God. And so his heart is starting to look different and his life is starting to look different. He's not arrived yet, like we haven't arrived. Paul said he hasn't arrived. But it's the beginning of heart change in Abram. Uh, I think one of the first things is that when Abram recognizes this doubt within himself, he didn't run away from God, right? And said he reigned to, to God. He said, Lord, how, how can I know in the deepest part of my heart that what you said is, is real? He's, he's not shrinking back and going, well, I almost believe that. Right? It's like, I, I get it, but I don't really get it. But I'm going to kind of just go with it and walk away. No, he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, how, how can I know in the deepest part of who I am? There's the beginning of a heart change in that. He's not running away from God. He's running to God. I think another thing that shows here that Abram's heart is, is really beginning to change is the fact that he's obedient. He goes and he gets these animals. And then he's not only obedient, he's patient. Because it says that he cut the, 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 the animals in half and he lays them each side apart from the other. And nothing happened. Things were, I mean, it was to the point where there were birds of play, prey Flying around overhead. There's nothing. There's no movement. And so he waits. And it gets dark. And Abram falls asleep. Right? He's patient. He believes that God is going to do what he said that he was going to do. He believes there's going to be a covenant made. And he's excited about it. And I believe it's one of the ways that we can see Abram's heart is really begun to shift because of God's grace once again.
I think there's a, a couple of things that are a little bit confusing about this text. Uh, I want to talk about two of those things and what I believe that they are uh, in reference to. Uh, and then I'll give you some applications. I think one of the first things that's a little bit confusing, uh, let's start reading again in verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. It says, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. What is this dreadful and great darkness? It sounds a little bit weird, like Abram's like asleep. And then there's this darkness that falls on Abram. And I, I, I haven't seen any commentaries that give a whole lot of depth of detail on this. The way that it appears to me is that God is allowing Abram to feel the oppression that his descendants would later feel. Right? There's this darkness, this oppressive thing that falls on Abram. And then God starts to elaborate on what's going to happen. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. I believe Abram felt the weight that his descendants would feel as being enslaved. And while that sounds like, man, that sounds like a pretty terrible experience, I think what God is doing is he is showing Abram another reason. It's another reason for him to believe that God is going to do what he said that he's going to do because even though he still has no child, he's feeling the weight that his descendants would feel Later, there's this great oppression that falls on Abram. And God uses this deep, heavy, dark thing, right, not to hurt or harm, but instead to build Abram's faith. I think another thing that's a little bit confusing, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to continue reading to get to this. Verse 17 says, uh, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. There's a couple of ways that we can look at this. Um, I was reading a commentary by John Calvin, and he talked about how there's this deep darkness that is sitting on Abram during this time, and then this flaming torch, which would have been bright, it's dark outside, but it's bright, and it's passing through these pieces of animal that are cut up. So there's a darkness that is over us as God's people, and God himself is making a covenant with us to bring about the salvation of his people. And it's a light that's cutting through the darkness as God is saying, I'm going to do what I said that I'm going to do. That was John Calvin's interpretation. I thought that that was pretty good. This light, the gospel, piercing through our darkness. I think another way to look at this in a way I feel like is probably a little bit more safe and, and, and direct with the passage is that God's presence itself is typically described as a fire. Uh, I won't say it's always described as a fire, but God is described as an all-consuming fire. When the Israelites are being led by night through the desert, what are they following? A pillar of fire, right? At the same time, there's this smoking fire pot, and oftentimes God's glory is described as smoke. And so you've got God's very presence and his glory passing through. This is, this is, again, God stooping down, walking on the earth, his very presence and his glory, as, as if he's walking through these pieces of, of, of animals saying, I will do this for my glory. Me and my glory will accomplish the salvation of my people. Abram, you just rest tight, buddy, because I'm going to do this on my own. 
I'm going to do this. I think there's something to be said. I'm not going to get into it, but I think that there's something to be said for this idea that Abram is resting off to the side while God does all the work of salvation. There's no part of this covenant that Abram has to fulfill. God does it all. Ordinarily, two parties walk through, right? Abram's over there. God's walking through because it's his work. The salvation of God's people is God's work. But I want to give you uh, three practical applications this morning on how we can live differently by this text. The first thing is this. Trust God beyond the circumstances of your life. God is much bigger and much better than I think any of us recognize. Sometimes life circumstances can be heavy and dark and we can't see and we don't know what to do and we believe God said he was going to do something and we just have to wait and trust that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. Trust God beyond the circumstances of your life. He's much bigger than the circumstances of your life. Second thing is this. Meet God where your belief and unbelief intersect. And I don't know what that looks like for you as an individual. Um, maybe you are, are really wanting to have a baby and it's just not happening, right? It, that's okay. Let's go to God in that place. And don't just do it for yourself. There are people all around you who wrestle with the same thing. We, again, all have this same problem where, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Listen, we want to see you grow as Christians. We want to see you grow into the image of Jesus. And part of what that looks like is finding where your belief and unbelief intersect and going to the Lord right there and saying, God, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Give me more faith today in this place. Find that place in your heart. And go to the Lord there. The third practical application for this morning is this. We should live lives with some humility. As those of us who know Jesus. One of the the big practical implications from this whole covenant is the fact that Abram's off to the side. You are not a here, you're not here today because you're smarter than the people who are not here, right? You're not a Christian because you're a better decision maker. You're a Christian this morning because God chose to move in your heart. And that should give us a little bit of humility when we talk to these folks who are outside of the body of Christ. I'm not better than them. I've just been given grace, right? That's what this Christian life is all about. And so now we go to folks and we don't look down on them. You know, yeah, okay, dude, you're an alcoholic. Man, if it wasn't for Jesus, I probably would be too, right? Man, you struggle with homosexuality. I'm really, really sorry. Like, dude, if it wasn't for the grace of God, that might be me. Maybe a good practice for us this morning is to think about that one sin that we feel like we could never do and we hate people who do it. Name your sin, right? But the fact of the matter is we should be able to look at someone like Adolf Hitler 
and say, there but for the grace of God go I. It's not just the fact that we're better decision makers. It's nothing that wonderful about us that God looked down and said, oh, I've got to have that one. He's got this characteristic or that characteristic. Or she's got this characteristic or that characteristic. It's God's grace. And so today we should walk with some humility as we look around and as we see the folks who don't know Jesus, as we approach them with the love of Jesus, we should recognize that if it wasn't for his grace, we would probably be doing the same things. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you again for your word. Lord, we want to grow. We, we, We want to be like Jesus. We want to bring you honor. Lord, we want to trust you where our belief and unbelief intersect. Lord, we we want to be able to look past our life's circumstances uh, directly into your character and know that we can trust you. Even when bad things happen, that's okay. You're still our shield. You're not only the rewarder, you're the reward. Father, and you chose to stoop down and make a covenant with us that, that you would save your people, that you would move, and you use us and you invite us into this work. Father, I pray that you would use us. Equip us for the work of your ministry. Father, help us to use our gifts that you've given us by your spirit to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we can all mature into full manhood, to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.